Chapter 10 of Murder Takes the Veil by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter 10 Jarvis Thatcher stopped at home in Marysville only long enough to make himself presentable before driving across town to an old white house on the outskirts. It was a genial place its grounds rambling in a leisurely expanse from the street to the gardens at the back. Beneath it, among the blocks which elevated the house above the dampness, a few chickens lay dusting themselves. As the sheriff came up the path, a brown hen stalked out from under the house, walked solemnly up the steps to the porch, eyed him, and hopped solemnly down. The performance was so prim that Jarvis laughed, and immediately a hammock stopped swinging on the porch. "'Jarvis Thatcher, of all people!' a woman exclaimed, struggling up out of the hammock. She was younger than the sheriff, sleek and well-groomed, even after an hour of laziness. Her slightly gray hair cut close like a man's, and her makeup so light it gave only vitality to her face. "'I've been trying to reach you, Jarvis. Come into the house. I was just thinking about a cup of coffee. You're working on the Perry case, of course.' The sheriff followed her into the house answered her questions, and wondered why it was that he never stopped of dropping in on Ermine Wagner. She was the sort to enjoy a chat without expecting a proposal of marriage. She brought the sheriff out to the kitchen and seated him in her upholstered breakfast nook while she made the coffee. He felt decidedly restful. Ermine's green linen slenderness was pleasant to look at. Listening more than he talked, Jarvis pondered matters that had nothing whatever to do with the tragedy at St. Aurelian's until Ermine sat down opposite him and poured the coffee. "'Now, Jarvis, you want to know about the girl I picked up. Did she tell you what she was afraid of?' The sheriff, pouring cream into his coffee, was surprised into slopping. "'Oh, I'm not clairvoyant, Jarvie. Ermine smiled. Anyone with an eye in their head could see that girl was scared. When I heard about Helen Perry this morning, I wondered if, well, if they had been afraid of the same thing, possibly.' that I'd brought the other one back to more than she'd bargained for. It bothered me, Jarvis. The girl might have known what she was doing, running away. The breakfast nook was not made for anyone of his bulk, but by shifting strategically, the sheriff was able to lean forward. Suppose you tell me what happened, Ermine. Oh, I will. Not that I think this is so important, but it isn't up to me to judge. I went to the play alone, since I was unable to find anyone willing to face the talents of St. Aurelian's and I wasn't in any hurry to leave. I talked to the sisters, stopped to look at Tolbertson's paintings. And by the way, Jarve, how did Mother Theodore ever snare a man of his genius? Is he a genius? The sheriff twinkled. Certainly, and he's a personage, not merely an artist. And then you started home? Yes, just as I was leaving the parking lot, this girl ran out and started down the road, and I picked her up. I thought at first she was the one they had been asking about, Helen Perry. There was quite a bit of whispering about how she had scampered off on a date, and I didn't want to be an accessory to anything clandestine. When I told her, she denied it so vehemently I had to believe her. And then, I suppose, to convince me, she said she knew where Helen was. Yes, Trillium even led me out to the cove to look. And Helen, was she, then... I'm afraid so, Ermine. She'd been in the water a long time when we found her, at least seven hours, the coroner said. Yeah, I'm afraid she was there when Trillium and I went out. 
Armony was not the woman to burst into tears, but she did take a moment to recover. I made the girl go back. She didn't want to. She almost jumped out of the car when I insisted. But I know Helen's mother, and I didn't see any point in prolonging her worry. Jarvis, this hardly makes sense now, does it? It made so little difference that I brought Trillian back. It didn't help you to find Helen in time. But if she feared something herself, don't you understand what I did? She paused, bewildered. Only I don't see what there could be in a quiet place like St. Aurelian's to frighten a girl as she was frightened. When I went there, the most ungodly thing that happened was a bat in a dormitory. But Trillium is so afraid that she can't even tell what's the matter. The only answer she could find was to run away. The sheriff swilled the dregs of his coffee slowly around the cup. Trillium's strange conduct was his only lead. It could be something unconnected with the murder. But the two girls were friends, and trouble was so foreign to St. Aurelian's that it was hardly possible for two unrelated forces to be at work, one resulting in a girl fleeing in terror and the other murdered. It couldn't happen. They're tied together in some way, Jarvis said, unaware that he spoke aloud. Armony was one of those people with whom silence could be broken or kept. I'll have to find that tie, and without Trillium's help. But where to begin? Armony let him think for a minute. Would it be something Trillium saw last night that made her panicky? The sheriff's jaw dropped. I hope not, Armony. So do I, and it might not be, if you only knew when she began to be afraid. She left the words to trail through the sheriff's mind, hoping he would pick them up. The same idea, Jarvis realized, had been in the back of his head all the time. That's something I can find out, Ermony, and if some new circumstance transpired at about the time that Trillian began to be afraid. Their glances met and slipped apart. The only new circumstance, they both remembered, was the advent of the three occupants of the guest house. The sheriff left soon after going straight to the telegraph office. It would take some time to unravel the past, but it could be done. At four o'clock, Mother Theodore, smiling rather wanly in answer to their excitement, shut the seniors into the auditorium for their class meeting and walked in deep meditation back to her office. Ever since Jarvis Thatcher left, Mother had been disturbed, not by any specific thing, but intuitively, as any woman can be disturbed without reason. She was irritated with herself. The superior of an institution like St. Aurelian's had no business being bothered by intuition. Perhaps it was because Mother was so annoyed with herself that she spoke sharply to Rendy, who was lingering in the corridor gloom outside the office. Rendy's back was turned to Mother, and to one approaching it seemed that Rendy was observing something she had no call to see, for she was leaning forward, tense, her attention so completely upon whatever she saw inside that she heard nothing of Mother's advent. It was not until Mother Theodore was beside her that Rindy jumped, murmured something about giving this here little old door a good polishin', and flew to work. "'Good afternoon, Mr. Archer,' said Mother Theodore. Crispin Archer glanced casually at the letter he held and slipped it into his pocket. "'Good afternoon, Mother.' "'Has the last mail come?' "'I believe so.' He gave her his most captivating smile. Would you have any idea of what might have become of Mercy Harding? We were to come to grips with misplaced modifiers this afternoon. Mercy is a senior, Mr. Archer. I'm afraid you'll have to excuse her today. 
Mother Theodore was not in the habit of making excuses for the girls. Normally she would have rung for Sister Osmond, who would locate the recalcitrant Miss Harding, and forwarding her with all speed to her appointment. But Mother was in a mood to enjoy the sight of Mr. Archer being miffed. It was good for him to be forgotten by a lady, even a very young one. The hunt for the Golden Fleece is one of the high points of our year, sir, and only an act of God can keep a senior from this meeting today. They elect the chairman of the committee, you see, and no one would miss the voting. To be elected chairman is the greatest honor a senior can be given. How charming, said Crispin, but the implication was the exact opposite. Oh, well, we too once were young and gay. The hunt has, of course, driven all else from their girlish minds. I trust so, Mr. Archer. Mother nodded coldly, she considered, and went on into her office and closed the door. I should have gone the whole way and been a contemplative, she thought, and said a swift prayer for forgiveness for the uncharitable reflection she was entertaining toward Mr. Archer. At that moment, Trillium stood among her milling classmates, her thoughts in as dizzy a whirl as the scene. She had never for a minute expected it to be chairman. Even when Mary Elizabeth, the inventive member of the class, suggested a baby muskrat to be the fleece this year, she had made no objection. She would have nothing to do with the muskrat. It couldn't seem like a throwback to the past. But in the landslide vote she had been elected chairman, and now she would have to creep through darkened halls with the muskrat in her arms. And if Jim should know... Trillium swayed, and a girl pushed a chair under her, and the joy mounted because of having elected a chairman who took the honor so to heart that she nearly fainted. And in the chair Trillium sat, smiling, drinking the water Hilaria brought, and all the time remembering that on the night the fleece was hidden, there was never a light showing, and the halls were black as outer darkness itself. If only she dared tell Mother or the Sheriff how she had tried to get in touch with Uncle Henry, how Helen had been mistaken for her, and it was no use to keep looking for a tramp who might be guilty of the murder. But her mother's letter had said, No matter what happens, say nothing. But did that what include killing? The girls were quieting down, waiting expectantly for her speech of acceptance, and Trillian made it. Thanking her classmates for the honor they had conferred upon her, she remembered under her conscious thoughts that this was the day for her weekly letter from her mother. It always came on the same day. Uncle Henry would have sent it on. She would go immediately after this meeting to get it. Rindy, polishing, was still in the hall when Trillium sped to the office. Rindy was very happy. Good luck had come her way today, and how easily she might have missed it. If she had just been working even at the other end of the hall, she would never have seen those three nice gentlemen come for their letters, or had them stop to speak to her. One asked if she would give his room in the guest house a special cleaning. Another wanted something pressed. And the third? Rindy giggled. Oh, ain't he the one? She muttered aloud. And all the time he know like I know that mother don't want him mixing up with the young ladies. Were you speaking to me, Rindy? Trillium asked, pausing breathless at the office door. Num, sure ain't, Rindy answered. She couldn't help giggling again. In her pocket was a five-dollar bill dampened slightly from all the time she had felt of it with her scrub-water hands. Easy money, the first that had ever come her way. Trillium heard the laughter in the girl's voice, but she did not respond. The letter from New Orleans was not on the table. Rindy, 
she began. But what was the use in asking Rindy? She had nothing to do with the student's letters. You look happy, Rindy. Santa Claus good to you already? Yes'm, and that's the truth. Trillium, is that you? Mother Theodore called from the inner office. Trillium was startled. She had not noticed the door standing ajar. She stepped forward, pushing it open. Mother was seated at her desk, her pen in hand. I have a message for you from Mr. Tovaldson. He asked me this morning for permission to have you pose for him. You may refuse if you wish. The room spun around Trillium. Franz had tried the friendly approach. Tovaldson wanted to get her up in that horrible bare studio. Trillium, I think I must insist that you tell me what is troubling you. The girl's face turned even whiter, and involuntarily Mother arose. With the desks between them, they confronted one another, and each knew that this was as far as the conference would go. I want to help you, dear, Mother urged, but the sealed, secret look in Trillium's eyes warned her that it was a vain attempt. I know you are worried, and I know that the very fact of telling someone would ease your mind. It need not be me. Wouldn't you like to talk with Father Michael? Trillium's gaze fell to her own hands, gripping the edge of the desk. I would like to, yes, Mother, but not just now. Mother Theodore waited a moment, then seated herself again, and took up her pen. Tobolson is doing a mural for us, she said briskly, several large portrait figures with a number of others grouped around them, possibly angels. He seems a little vague about it yet, but I understand these things grow from the original sketches. She smiled. It's an honor, dear. The girl managed to smile back. Two honors in one day, and both so deceptive, like the hyacinths blooming delicately with their roots hidden in slime. Has he asked some of the other girls to pose for him, mother? Yes, and they're both thrilled to be immortalized. Nervista Braddy and Little Minna Marsh. I'm sure posing must be tiresome, but they don't seem to think of that. I have to answer, Trillium thought and it will have to be yes. Someone came into the outer office, and she said quickly, I'll do it, of course, and thank you, mother. She laid her hand on the knob, but instead of opening the door, she pushed it shut. Mother Theodore, I didn't mean to hurt you. It isn't you. It's just that I can't tell anyone. The girl's misery was so touching that the sight of it blurred for mother. It's perfectly all right, dear, she said. Trillium flung open the door and ran out, almost colliding with Sister Enfoy, because her tears made it impossible for her to see where she was going. Down in the guesthouse, Crispin Archer sat at the piano. For a half hour he had been playing the same theme with his own improvisations, each more weirdly minor than the last. Franz, sunk in a big chair with his head resting on one arm of it, his knees hung over the other, stared at the ceiling. Since the young ladies of St. Aurelian's had temporarily forsaken education due to the hunt for the Golden Fleece, there was nothing for either of them to do. "'Are you going to play that tune all night?' Franz grunted at last. "'I'm seeing pink spiders on the ceiling.' "'I'll quit when they turn purple.' Chris glanced at the picturesque black head in the chair, and a smile that was not quite amused played over his face. His square hands hit the keys, with clumsy power, as if he had a greater strength than he dared use. But the harmony that resulted was a dance of capricious daintiness. 
Suddenly, Franz sat up, sniffing. Crispin continued to play. Without being deliberate enough to have a motive, Franz rose, stretched, and sauntered out into the little back hall from which opened the kitchen and bedrooms. Once out of sight, he became alert, sniffing again. The tainted smoke, here, was unmistakable. Noiseless on the carpet, he advanced to Tolson's door. Perhaps the artist believed his door should be closed, because only a crack remained open. But through that crack, Franz saw Tolson, intent on what he was doing. He was tearing up a letter and burning it, bit by bit, in an ashtray. End of chapter 10